This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program's live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, activist, author, and former FBI Most Wanted list member Angela Davis talks with CIAS professor Danielle Drake about her life and work. This event was recorded on April 13, 2018, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Good evening, everyone. Are you as excited as I am? I don't think you're as excited as I am. (laughs) So today, um, or this evening, I have the pleasure of being able to sit across from one of my personal um, faraway mentors, (laughs) Um, mentors from afar, but... um, I would like to just begin with a really important question. Did you see the movie, The Black Panther? (laughs) People are doing Wakanda forever in here. (laughs) Of course I saw it. But it's interesting because uh, the first time I was asked whether I had seen it, I was traveling, and the only possibility of seeing it was in Logan, Utah. (laughs) And I decided to wait until I got home to Oakland. All right, so um, as you were watching that film, what did you make of some of the themes that were brought up? Because I know that they directly reference a lot of what was happening during the early part of your sort of social justice career. I don't even want to call it career, but just life. And so, um, yeah, what did you think about some of those themes and the way that they were addressed? Well, first of all, um, it was an, um, an, an extremely beautiful film. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and when have you ever seen so many dark-skinned black women Woo! on screen? So there were many aspects of the film I really appreciated. Uh, uh, I'm not quite sure about the connection with uh, the historical era when the Black Panther Party emerged. Uh, um, and, you know, sometimes when, I, when I'm experiencing uh, art, film, music, uh, and it makes me feel so good, it's so pleasurable, it's so beautiful, I catch myself and remind myself that I'm also supposed to be utilizing my critical skills uh, 
So that was that was a, a similar situation okay. where I had to to say, now now wait a minute. Uh, there are some issues with this film, uh, uh, with what we assume are all of the critiques of uh, patriarchy and you know strong women, strong black women in in every field. But the king is still a man. Yes. Yes. But the patriarchal tradition persists. Yes. And you know, sometimes I think that that we have to um, ask ourselves questions about um, assimilation. Uh, do we simply mm. do we simply want to be assimilated mm. into a structure that fundamentally remains the same? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so we could spend the rest of the time. <laughs> I had to, I had to ask that question as I was thinking about um, opening up this conversation because it is one of those moments right now um, that is being paid attention to globally. All I mean, the they world. are opening up movie theaters in Saudi Arabia in order after 35 years or so of of having them shut down in order for this movie to be seen. And so, of course, I wanted to be able to exactly. talk to you a little bit about it. Um, but you see, the point that I would make is that we have to learn how to inhabit contradictions. Mm -hmm. We have to learn how to um, experience that pleasure and at the same time be critical. And that might appear to be a, a, an, an irreconcilable contradiction, but it's actually a productive contradiction. Uh, and I think that particularly when we um, experience popul popular culture, we have to get accustomed to uh, bringing our critical skills with us, even as we dance, even as we enjoy yeah. the music, yeah. even as we enjoy the visual imagery. Yes. I really appreciate your saying that, particularly because I work as um, an expressive arts therapist, and I'm always in the realm of art and creativity and really being able to look at how it, exactly what you're saying. How do we inhabit the, the contradictions? How do we find the beauty in the suffering, you know, and vice versa, you know, exactly. so that we're able to come away with some nuanced perspectives and not just make a bunch of assumptions that don't necessarily invite lots of different types of people into the conversation. Absolutely. So, yeah, for sure. Thanks. Um, so <laughs> I'm like, thank you. Um, one of the things that I also wanted to talk about was just you, you, how did you personally begin to begin this critical thinking journey that is taking you in a number of different realms. But I know that you're from Birmingham, Alabama. And um, from what I know about the South during that time, listening to my own parents who were born in the South during that same particular time, you know, that there was a real need for some, not just critical thinking, but protection? Yeah. Um, when I grew up in Birmingham uh, during the um, mid and late 40s, early 1950s, um, 
Birmingham was the most um, segregated city in the U.S. And it was probably one of the most violent cities. Uh, as a matter of fact, everyone is familiar with the 63 church bombing that happened in 1963. But, but houses were bombed. Um, other churches were bombed. As a matter of fact, when I became involved in a, um, um, an interracial discussion group when I was about 11 years old that hmm. took place at the church I attended, which was a congregational church, um, uh, we, uh, we experienced a bombing then. Uh, the church the church was uh, actually it was, the church was actually burned because young people were simply talking to each other wow. uh, uh, and did not respect the racial boundaries. Uh, so yeah, it was, you know, on the one hand, one might assume that it was uh, a, a really difficult place to grow up in. Um, but I learned a lot. I'm glad I grew up in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I, I'm glad, actually, I, I, I can say that I'm glad I attended segregated schools. Uh, Please talk and, to and about that. And that might sound you know, contradictory. <laughs> Let's talk about that. <laughs> uh, but but um, I got to learn uh, so much about the history of black people. Uh, I... You know, I can remember whenever we sang the national anthem, we sang the, the, uh, the Negro national anthem yes. as well, lift every voice and yes. sing. Uh, uh, so there was something really powerful about growing up and going to school within a context that encouraged resistance. Uh, mm -hmm. And not spectacular resistance, uh, although there were spectacular examples of resistance, but quotidian resistance, daily resistance. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can remember my teachers um, um, uh, talking back to the you know, white uh, representatives of the Board of Education who would visit the school. And one of the things they inevitably did was to call the, uh, the black teachers by their first names. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, teachers were fired for, for, for saying, you know, my name is Mrs. So-and-so. Uh, um, and a story that I almost always tell when I talk about growing up uh, in Birmingham, and I think this will give you a sense of what I'm trying to talk about, mm -hmm. uh, um, is that um, even the games that we played as children mm -hmm. uh, were uh, marked by uh, this, uh, this resistance. Uh, and my, my parents... Um, bought a house, I think it cost $6,000, <laughs> a really big house <laughs> that was situated um, on the corner of Center Street and 11th Court in uh, Birmingham. Okay, Center Street was the dividing line between the white neighborhoods and the black neighborhoods. So we were literally, legally, not allowed to cross the street 
as black people unless um, unless there was some like economic reason. I mean, of course, if you were a domestic servant, you could, but you could mm -hmm. do that. But you had to prove that that's what why you were uh, in that neighborhood. And so, as kids, we had uh, we 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 developed this um, game where we would dare each other to run across the street. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and we did this all the time. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and I remember that uh, those of us who were really bold would not only run across the street, um, but we would run up and ring some white person's <laughs> doorbell <laughs> and then try to run back to safety before they oh my <laughs> saw <goodness>. who was there. <laughs> So, and, and, you know, I, I know I, it took me a while before I was able to understand the mm. meaning of, of those simple um, childhood games mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and how um, resistance, you know, it doesn't have to be spectacular. Yes. Most people assume mm -hmm. that if they want to do something to change the world, that they have to be uh, Dr. Martin Luther King or somebody like that. Mm -hmm. um, but what really matters is the development of the kind of consciousness that uh, encourages us uh, uh, in, in, in many ways, in the smallest ways, to resist and, and, and speak back to power. Mm -hmm. Whatever that looks like. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So as you were entering into your teenage and, and young adult years, who were the people or what were the ideas that were central to you in helping support this idea of resistance that you wanted, that you were cultivating and really holding on to? Well, you know, um, I, I grew up in an environment that did encourage resistance. Um, but I think that I felt, and many of my friends felt, constrained uh, uh, living in, in the South. Uh, uh, and so I... Um, I decided, you know, I wanted to, to go somewhere else. Uh, um, when I was in high school, I, I was actually, um, after my second year in high school, you know, one possibility was that I could actually get um, admitted to college early. So I applied to Fisk University on the early admission program mm -hmm. and got in. Um, um, but then I also applied to a program that was... Um, it was, it was actually sponsored by the American Friends Service Committee. It was a Quaker program. And the idea was to bring black students from the South to the North. Um, and they, these black students would live with white families and go to school there. Um, and that's what I ended up doing. Uh, and I think, you know, I think I assume that moving from the south to the north would bring a greater measure of freedom, right? Uh, <laughs> and that was an assumption at that time. 
Well, I mean, actually, looking back on, 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 on that trajectory, I realized that, you know, as soon as I got to New York, I realized that there were some really problematic aspects mm -hmm. of... Uh, uh, well, I, I, I love the school I attended. I attended a school in Greenwich Village uh, um, associated with a little red schoolhouse called Elizabeth Irwin High School. Uh, and... Uh, um, one of my uh, very close friends to this very day um, uh, is Kathy Boudin. And um, she was also on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted. <laughs> <laughs> so you were just collecting these friends all along. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, it's, it's interesting because it was a very, very small school. There were only about 28 students in our grade. I'm like, where was this school? Two out of the 28. And can we recreate it? Uh, Kathy and I continue to do uh, work around um, prison issues. She was in, she was in, in prison for uh, about 25 years. Mm. So, um, and she has this wonderful program at Columbia University now, and mm. she, you know, works with uh, formerly incarcerated yes. people. Yes. Um, so uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I thought that I was going to find freedom in the North. That didn't happen. And interestingly, I, I started to think about another geographical displacement, going somewhere else. Uh, so I decided that, uh, that I would go to France. Uh, because, you know, <laughs> France is supposed to be the land of uh, liberté, égalité, right, yes. <laughs> fraternité, right? <laughs> and so I ended up also, you know, going to France. I, I, um, I worked as a waitress my first year in college, and I ended up um, with enough money to buy a ticket on a freighter and took a Greek freighter wow. to Europe. Uh, and then when I arrived, it was the height of the Algerian War. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and because of the fact that uh, uh, anybody who has was, you know, not white was considered possibly Algerian. Um, I um, I had a number of conversations with people who told me that I'd better not go outside at night, uh, you know, because the police were arresting um, vast numbers of North Africans. In any event. Uh, um, I didn't find freedom in New York. I thought I would find it in, 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 in Paris. But what I did find mm. was um, international solidarity mm. because I became involved in, 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 the, in the movement uh, that was protesting the treatment that uh, Algerians and the North Africans were uh, getting at the hands of the police. And I, and I read France Fanon. Mm. Uh, so, I didn't find freedom, but I think I found uh, a community that uh, brought, um, that made freedom appear to be um, closer on the horizon. Mm. Uh, that is to say, uh, a, a sense of, of togetherness, uh, a sense of uh, a comrade, uh, comradely uh, togetherness. Mm -hmm. uh, 
with people from all over the world. Yeah. Wow. So, wonderful. Yeah. That's a part of the story I absolutely didn't know. Yeah. Um, so after that period in France and you came back to the United States and um, tell me a little bit or tell us a little bit about how you were able to um, be involved in the Communist Party, um, sort of the connections with the Black Panthers. And then at one point you were, had uh, gotten a job at UCLA and then had that job taken away um, by former governor and president Ronald Reagan. I need to like, yeah, exactly. Who's yeah. doing that? <laughs> but um, just talk about that period of time because it, that for me seems like what catapult you into the global spotlight, like that period of time when you were like all of a sudden like having this job and then having it taken away and then, you know, being on the FBI most wanted list and all of that. Well, you know, it was, I never had the desire to be um, a public figure. I never had the desire mm -hmm. to be out front. I, from the time I was uh, very young, I always saw myself uh, doing um, resistance work, doing organizing work. But I saw myself doing the work that happens in the background. Mm -hmm. That's the most important work, anyway. Yep. The work that... The work that never receives the credit that it deserves. Right. Uh, so yeah, I you know I, I, I was I studied in France for a while. I also studied philosophy in Germany, and I was involved in various movements, the anti-war movement there especially. Uh, and I was in Germany when in 1966 when the Black Panther Party was uh, founded. And I read about it, and in those days we had to read about it in the newspaper. <laughs> Uh, and and so I I realized that I needed to come home, mm. uh, and I came back uh, largely because I wanted to be associated with this uh, you know surge of resistance that was happening, mm -hmm. uh, and also I was uh, I, w I was studying uh, with um, Herbert Marcuse, who became my most important uh, mentor. A philosopher in the uh, uh, German Marxist tradition, who um, was also uh, quite um, a participant in the m movements that were happening around that time. We're talking about around 1968, right? Mm -hmm. Six, 66, 67, 68. Uh, and that was the context in which I was offered a job at UCLA by the philosophy department. Uh, and, you know, I figured, okay, yeah, I'm doing this organizing work, I'm, I, I'm studying, uh, I, can, I, I can do that. They wanted me to teach Marxism <laughs> because they didn't have anyone in the department. If anyone, if you know about the nature of philosophy departments in this country, it was, an, it was a department of analytic uh, philosophers. Mm -hmm. uh, and they brought me in to... Um, teach um, continental philosophy and Marxism in particular. So I thought that would be great. Uh, of course, um, I had joined the Communist Party and 
and knew about the McCarthy era, but I thought the McCarthy era was, was over. <laughs> the first response uh, to my accepting the job at UCLA was, um, was uh, uh, a question posed by the chancellor of the university regarding my political affiliation. Mm. And so I responded by saying I did not know that that was um, a requirement of the job. Uh, and I wondered whether other um, professors and instructors there were asked whether they were members of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or whatever. I was asked whether I was a communist. And, and instead of taking the fifth, <laughs> I said, yes, and I'm proud of it. <laughs> and, and people in the department were aware that I was a communist. I mean, after all, I was hired to teach Marxism, you know? And if you know anything about Marxism, there's a relationship between theory and practice, right? <laughs> Um, so yeah, yeah, that was the that was the beginning of uh, the whole uh, notoriety. Yeah, that was it was created by Ronald Reagan. Right. Yeah. Um, it, and I, you know, I, I said at that time, had anyone told me that uh, uh, all of this would result from my taking that job, I probably would have said. No thanks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I would have, you know, continued to do what, what I was doing. Because, as I said before, I, I didn't consider myself uh, a person who uh, wanted to be in the limelight. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and I had to actually learn how to uh, inhabit mm. uh, that, uh, that position. Okay. This is off my script. How did you learn how to do that? I mean, I... I, I that, that's one of my questions is really, you've become a cultural icon. And I can't imagine what that experience is like to, to have to learn how to inhabit a role like that that you didn't go after, but that was sort of thrust upon you. Well, you know, I had to, I had to recognize that, that uh, I could never live up to all of the expectations uh, that uh, surrounded, you know, that kind of role. And I, it, I, I knew this. Um, I knew that it wasn't about me as an individual. I mean, I knew that uh, when I was fired, it wasn't about me as an individual. It had very little to do with anything I had done individually. It was about, it was about a community. It was about mm -hmm. a movement. Mm -hmm. And I happened to be the person who was uh, uh, targeted uh, because, uh, because Reagan, you know, needed an enemy. Mm -hmm. He needed to be able to point to, uh, and this is, I mean, this is what often happens. Uh, it's happening now. It's happening right now. If you look at, if you look at the way in which the Trump administration uses this process of mobilizing people against an enemy, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's against 
immigrants, mm -hmm. uh, you know, whether it's against Muslims. Yeah. Um, so I had to realize that it wasn't about me. Mm. Um, and, that, uh, and that through me, uh, people were acknowledging a movement. A movement that um, continues. And I, I always say today uh, that uh, I'm, you know, I, I could care less whether people remember me as an individual. Uh, that's, not, that's not what it's about. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but I do think it's important for there to be some historical memory about the campaign that developed around my case. Uh, mm -hmm. Because finally, when I, when, 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 I was, uh, uh, when I was jailed and charged with um, three capital crimes, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the movement that people organized all over the country and all over the world, literally all over the world, yes. not only saved my life, and it did save my life, mm -hmm. but it, 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 it demonstrated that it was possible to achieve what many considered to be absolutely impossible. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, I was um, um, targeted by Ronald Reagan, and I always like to point out that three of the most powerful men in the world, like, uh, you remember who was, uh, do you know who was president at that time? Yeah, Richard Nixon was president. Mm -hmm. And who was the head of the, <laughs> we're talking about the FBI now, <laughs> well, who, was, who was the head of the FBI at that time? J. Edgar Hoover. So you had this, you know, this powerful this like triumvirate. Tri trifecta of yes, power. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And that movement, which em embraced people literally all over the world, demonstrated that we could win if we hmm. stood up against this power in, um, in, 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 in a unified way. Mm -hmm if we joined hands, if we created this remarkable uh, sense of solidarity. Mm. And, and I think that's, that's important to remember. I mean, I was just a yes. beneficiary of that. Yes. But it's that movement, because we need that today as well. I feel like... So this is how, this is how I came to inhabit the position. Yeah. Recognizing that it really isn't about mm -hmm. anything that I have uh, accomplished alone. Mm -hmm. That everything that I've done uh, and everything that has been done for me mm -hmm. happened you know, as a result of, of communities and collectivities. Mm -hmm. uh, and people whose names we don't even know. Right. And, and those are the people who really... Um, uh, transform history. Hmm. I really appreciate this ability to talk about the importance of community building and coalition building and building across many different communities because I feel like that is what we're looking for right now, that that's the only thing that's going to really get us moving towards something that feels more generative than what we're dealing with at this moment in, exactly. in history, absolutely. So I wanna backtrack a little bit and talk um, about your time 
in jail and how that informed your idea, your experience, how your experiences have informed your um, like ideas around systemic imprisonment, the prison industrial complex. Like I, that is, I think, one of the most important things that we are dealing with as a society right now is the way that people are taken out of communities and placed basically back into slavery. I mean, we talk about the 13th Amendment, which says that slavery has been abolished except in the case of imprisonment. And so talk, talk about that, like how your experiences in that setting really like informed how you're thinking about this even today. I mean, because I know that this is the crux of your work at this point. Yeah, and I mean, if someone had told me um, you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, that I would spend most of my life doing this work, uh, I don't know what I would have uh, thought. Um, but, um, yeah, um, you know, now I think about the time that I spent in jail as, uh, as something like a gift. Um, it's shaped so much of who I am today and helped to create a, a, a trajectory that led me to work with other, you know, amazing people. Uh, um, but yeah, it was, it, 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 it was a gift. And I think that, you know, sometimes when we're experiencing, you know, really difficult situations, um, it's important to ask ourselves, uh, uh, you know, what else is there aside from the difficulty? Uh, you know, what can we learn? Uh, um, you know, oftentimes, um, uh, we, when we think about slavery, uh, it's, on, it's always only in terms of uh, the horrors, mm. you know, in terms of the violence. Uh, uh, but what's so remarkable about uh, the black struggle and black people is that we survived that. And, we, it, and not only not only did we survive, but we, we created, uh, you know, all of these um, objects of beauty. We created, you know, music and, uh, and, and, and that is something that I think it's, it's often hard to grasp mm -hmm. uh, uh, because if slavery is represented and you see people laughing and, and you know, dancing, uh, it, it kind of militates against the idea that you hold of slavery and say, why are they making slavery, you know, seem okay? But that's not what it's about. Uh, um, and so, yeah, I think that I learned um, from the time that I was in jail, and compared to what many other people have experienced, uh, it was just, uh, it was, you know, just a moment, really. Uh, but I learned a great deal about um, the ways in which looking at the predicament of women in, in, in prison. And today, when I say 
women, I'm trying to use the category as expansively, as capaciously yes. as possible, yes. um, including um, you know, not only women of all racial and ethnic uh, backgrounds, but including trans women, yes. uh, who've taught us a great yes. deal about the nature of the institution. Yes. Uh, uh, so, yeah, you know, it was when I was in jail that I first heard about abolition. Mm. Um, because the Attica brothers in 1971 were calling for, you know, abolition of the prison system as we know it. Uh, uh, and, um, of course, uh, and, you know, actually what's interesting is that at that time, in around 1971, 1971-72, it was taken seriously. Mm. Uh, they were, if, if you look back at uh, periodicals like the New York Times, and so, there were actually um, editorials and articles about trying to find an alternative to the prison system. Uh, but then, of course, uh, the, the, the whole history of the prison system is like a pendulum swing, uh, you know, from reform and... and, and and trying to uh, uh, um, effectively, you know, challenge the damage that is done by the prison system, and then the pendulum swings to. Uh, after a few moments of reform, it swings back to incapacitation, uh, and and so today the whole notion that, um, well, first of all, that it's not just a system of punishment. But it does a lot of other things. Uh, uh, it, 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 it affects the way we think about gender. And I, mm -hmm. I, I mentioned uh, trans women mm -hmm. uh, because uh, uh, the prison system is itself a gendering apparatus as well. Uh, 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 because it only acknowledges uh, cis men and women, right? Uh, um, and we also uh, recognize the work that the, the system does to prevent us from understanding um, what it is we should be envisioning as the future of, of our society. Uh, the assumption is that whenever there are problems, there's a prison system to take care of the problems. Mm. Right? Uh, so we don't stop and really reflect on how to, you know, how do we engage with uh, 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 gender violence? How do we get rid of gender violence? Mm -hmm. Rather than simply sending everybody who is caught engaging in a gender violence to, and, and it's not even true that everybody goes mm -hmm. to prison, but mm -hmm. the, that's generally assumed to be the solution, right? Mm -hmm. um, someone like Larry, Larry Nasser uh, 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 sexually molests uh, hundreds, probably hundreds of, of young uh, um, athletes, uh, gymnasts. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, we, I think we know that of at least 170 some odd. So he gets what, what happens? He gets sentenced to 170 years. Mm 
which is ridiculous anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but it prevents us from asking, how oh. is it that something like this could happen? happen? You know, what are the... You know, what are the... What, what are the structural and institutional uh, frameworks that allowed for something like this to happen? So the prison system serves as this um, break. This, it arrests our thinking. It arrests our efforts to build a better world mm -hmm. because it presents itself as something that can solve every single uh, thing that goes wrong in the so-called free world. Uh, and, and I mean, that's why abolition is so important, uh, not just to uh, create other ways of dealing with um, harm, but to, to extricate our vision and our imagination to allow us to imagine different ways of living with yes. each other. Yes. <sighs> I think a lot of us in here, I know certainly me as a as a clinician in the mental health system, that that is really the, the task, you know, from my perspective. But that in and of itself is a system that, um, you know, is fraught with a lot of peril, really. Right. So one of the things that I was, um, that I did in thinking about uh, interviewing you is I work from a collective brain. I don't do anything by myself. It's always in community. And so I wanted to bring in the, some voices from the community that um, I was like, well, I've got this opportunity. Let me just share the love. <laughs> so I want to ask some questions that came from some community members. And um, one of them uh, talks about women's incarceration rates. And we've um, been talking a little bit about that and how they've grown dramatically since the 1970s. Um, can you share your thoughts about how efforts to, to reverse prison growth rates have worked better for men than women, particularly with the growing numbers of facilities housing women and their children? And this question comes from Latronda, who is 45 and an Oakland native and a social worker and entrepreneur, so yeah. Talk a little bit about like this idea of, of expanding the prison system to in, incorporate women and children. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, it makes like no said. sense at all. Uh, and um, yeah, you know, we often hear the statistic that. Um, 25% um, of all the prisoners in the world are in prison in the U.S., mm -hmm. even though the U.S. population is 5% of the global population. Right. But if we look at women, we, almost one-third of all women on the planet who are in prison are in prison in the United States of America. And, and there's something really wrong about that. Um, but I also, I also uh, would like to point out that uh, uh, it's often considered that women uh, constitute a relatively small percentage of the uh, entire prison population. 
because women don't commit as many crimes, uh, uh, that men commit more of, the, more of the crimes. And as a matter of fact, uh, uh, some scholars uh, argued that with the rise of women's liberation, women started committing more crimes, and that's why, <laughs> yeah. Well, we won't go into right. that. Right. <laughs> uh, um, but I think it's really important to uh, recognize the other ways in which uh, uh, women are controlled. Uh, and the, if we think about social control mm -hmm. as a larger concept, and, and if we recognize that uh, women constitute the vast majority of uh, people in psychiatric care, in psychiatric in institutions, uh, and also, and this, this is an insight that I had working uh, with um, uh, people who were interested both in uh, abolition and uh, uh, gender violence and, 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 and finding ways to contest gender violence. Uh, I mean, it's interesting that gender violence is the most pandemic form of violence in the world. Hmm. And of course, the you know the the movements that have recently emerged are uh, reinforcing our um, what we should have known already. And it's I mean, isn't it amazing that people people look at these figures like Harvey Weinstein and hmm. Bill Cosby and they are shocked. <laughs> I mean, they shouldn't be shocked because this is encouraged, the ideology of heteropatriarchy mm -hmm. encourages that kind of violence. Um, but but it, it, it seems to me that also uh, there's a strange way in which the state implicitly delegates the power of punishing women. Uh, to men, and I'm using these gender categories uh, uh, in, uh, I mean, we have to be careful yeah. about the way we use, you know, notions of women and men because mm. they're very much constructed. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, um, but, um, but to consider gender, uh, consider domestic violence, uh, uh, sexual assault, as connected to the violence that happens in these institutions, uh, through the police, uh, through uh, prisons, the army. I think it's really important. And this is what I think the feminism that uh, the, um, what is often referred to as intersectional feminism mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. has allowed us to think about these phenomena together and not to assume that there's this kind of violence here that has absolutely nothing to do like police violence, which has absolutely nothing to do with the violence that happens among um, young uh, people in the community. Uh, there's school violence, right? There's school shooters, and that has absolutely nothing to do with gang violence. Uh, and so that, 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 that feminism that urges us to put things together that are frequently um, th thought of as discrete and separate, uh, it has been so helpful during this period. Mm. And it helps us to understand that there is a relationship between uh, intimate violence uh, and police violence. Mm. Uh, mm. 
So I'm going to um, ask another question from the community. And this question comes from uh, a pair of sisters, Makita, who is 12, and Yanija, who is 18. Okay. And they are sisters and young student activists from East Oakland. Okay. <laughs> and um, this is a, it's a little wordy, so I'm going to read it. Uh, <laughs> as young black girls in America today, we are bombarded with images and opinions constantly through media and now social media. We recognize the various movements that have been at the forefront in the media over the past several years, such as Black Lives Matter, founded by black women, and most recent, women's marches, the ones with the pink hats. <laughs> we also clearly see that these moments don't seem to merge very often that there are a few white women supporters of the Black Lives Matter movement and some faces of color in the crowd of mainstream feminism events, but each in general uh, seems to be isolated from each other. So their question, what do you believe to be the largest obstacle that keeps many modern movements from practicing true intersectionality and how as young people, See, this is why I asked the community. They know so much. These are, you know, some amazing girls. And how as young people can we cure this? Lastly, please advise us on how we cannot become exhausted and burn out in this work. <laughs> well, these girls are fantastic. <laughs> well... You know, um, things are changing. Mm. The very fact that um, girls in high school are thinking about these issues is an indication that we're moving in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it is important um, to uh, point out how little has changed. Uh, because sometimes it feels like nothing has changed. It feels like we're rehearsing over and over again the same, same issues. Uh, um, but then on the other hand, when you see new generations of, of, of activists and um, intellectuals uh, like these, you know, young, young, young women who pose this question. That's where the hope resides. Mm. Uh, so I think that I would ask them that question. Mm. Uh, what can we do? Uh, you know, I would say I don't think we're um, confronting exactly the same situation as we did when uh, the uh, mainstream feminism of the 60s emerged. Uh, and many of us who were women of color could not uh, uh, relate to the issues. Uh, we were, uh, you know, there were questions of reproductive rights which were important and are still important. Uh, uh, and some of us were saying, well, we need to look at the question of reproductive justice as not only involving the right to abortion, but also uh, protection against sterilization abuse. Mm -hmm. uh, right. um, 
And we have to think about it not... One of the problems now is that even abortion rights under Roe v. Wade mm -hmm. is a question of privacy. It's framed within a bourgeois context uh, so that it, it doesn't attend to the needs of poor women. Right. Um, so I think we understand this now. Young people really get, you know, what we had to work so hard to try to figure out the younger generations take it for granted. Mm -hmm. And they're taking that knowledge and moving forward yeah. with it. Uh, yeah. So I, I think that that question involves the question, involves the question of how to organize. Mm -hmm. How to organize uh, uh, movements that have this intersectional consciousness. Uh, and you know, how, um, how do we all learn how to move beyond the boundaries and the strictures that are created uh, uh, around our communities? And just, you know, just, just one point. I, I've been thinking a lot about how it is that someone like Donald Trump, you know, how did he, how, <laughs> what is that all about? It's I like a nightmare. <laughs> Every day. Every day. Every day. Every day. How did that happen? And of course, there are a lot of ways in which we could discuss that, but I want to try to relate it to mm -hmm. the question that yeah. uh, they were asked. You know, why is it that we were not able to build movements that made it clear that, um, you know, white working class suffering which Donald Trump exploited, mm -hmm. yes. was very much related to uh, the conditions that drove people to um, want to immigrate to the U.S., very much related to the conditions that led to the expansion of the prison industrial complex uh, mm -hmm. and what we call mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, those, those phenomena are very much connected with the rise of global capitalism and deindustrialization. And, and so, why is it that we couldn't bring all of those groups together? Yes. And a lot of those people who did actually vote for Donald Trump would, would be with us today mm -hmm. had we had that, that mm -hmm. insight. Yeah. So, I think that's the real challenge, yeah. and that's the challenge that is inherent in the question. Mm -hmm that the young women ask. Yes, absolutely. And so there's two different directions that I wanna go. Um, one is that I wanna talk for a little bit about what I feel like you're talking about, which is um, the ability to complexify the way that we approach any issue or challenge that we are facing. So right now, gun violence is high in the media because of the mass shootings. I grew up in South Central Los Angeles in the 80s. You know, yeah, yeah. we, gun violence was everywhere. Uh-oh, I'm losing my microphone. That's how important this is. <laughs> um, but I mean- Better watch I, out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that during that time, I mean, gun violence was rampant in my community. I grew up literally dodging bullets. And um, that was something that was sort of taught to us, you know, in the streets, that you have to know how to duck. 
But, and now we're in this moment where the, the media is really taking hold of this idea of, 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 you know, curbing gun violence and that sort of thing. But it's also needs, I feel like, needs to be complexified by the fact that, you know, there are, the NRA is strong. There are people who really want to be able to keep their, their gun rights. And that there are folks of color who feel like they need to protect themselves you know, and want to be able to own guns in order to hopefully defend against just rampant community violence that could take place at any moment in time. So like, where do, how do we like bring all of these different perspectives together? Yeah. <laughs> used to talk about the importance of self-defense. The Black Panther Party yes. uh, was the Black Panther Party for self-defense. Uh, yes. Uh, and the, the deacons uh, for defense in Louisiana. Um, um, Negroes with guns, Robert Williams, the head of the NAACP in North Carolina. Uh, and, and, you know, my, my father had guns. And I, I saw him pull the guns out on numerous occasions when uh, the, he thought the Ku Klux Klan was posing a threat because they were terrorizing yes, your neighborhood. Exactly, exactly. And 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 I had guns. I mean, that's how you know I ended up. Um, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> FBI's most wanted. And. And I still believe that we have the right to engage in self-defense, mm. but I don't think we can frame it in the same way today. Uh, okay. uh, there are more guns in this country in the hands of civilians than there are people. There is something wrong with that. Yeah. Uh, there's something absolutely wrong. And I'm going to say something which may sound absolutely crazy and absolutely ridiculous, uh, uh, but I think I think everybody needs to be disarmed, including the police and the military. And sometimes, sometimes we have to be willing to say what it is we think mm. we need. Yeah. even though it may not be achievable immediately. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, if we are talking about uh, uh, gun control, you know, why not extend the idea of gun control to the institutions that have the monopoly <laughs> of gun power? Uh, because I think that ultimately, uh, Unfortunately, I don't think we're gonna, any of us here are going to see that day. But I think that ultimately, if humanity survives, uh, we'll have to get if rid of the, the... Yeah, I, I mean, I'm saying this as a challenge because it means that we have work that we need to do mm -hmm. today in order to ensure that humanity survives. Uh, yes. And if humanity survives, uh, we will, 
we will have to have extricated ourselves from uh, this, this, you know, all of these uh, means of producing violence. Uh, uh, even in terms of like, you know, hunting for animals. Uh, uh, because I think it's not just about humanity. It's about, it's about the planet. It's about the environment. It's about those with whom we share. Reverence for life. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I think we have to be able to imagine and, 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 and we have to express our um, ways of imagining the future, uh, even, even if it sounds like really crazy at the moment. Mm. Uh, so I, I say shut down the Pentagon, you know, <laughs> abolish Abolish the police as the prime mode of security yes. and imagine other means Ways of security. Of, exactly. Yes, yes, of being able to ensure real safety equitably right. across communities. That's right. Absolutely. I feel like so much of what we're talking about requires a personal, intentional look at ourselves to be able to really look at the places that maybe we haven't looked before and to be able to work across difference. My final question comes from um, some students of color at CIIS um, who are dealing with some issues in the classroom. What advice would you give to students of color in higher education who regularly encounter microaggressions from their white peers for example, a common microaggression is when white students respond to talks about race and racism with, why are we always talking about race and not this other oppressed identity? And how do you choose which microaggressions to respond to and not? Mm, that's a hard question. <laughs> Because you do have to make choices. It is you important do. to make you choices. Uh, otherwise... Uh, For your health. Exactly, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I'm just uh, saying it. It's about survival out here. <laughs> but you see, you see, I think that we also need to bring white people into the conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cause it's, because if we assume that it's always going to be a question of people of color against white people, then there's no solution. Um, and so we should also ask, what should white people be doing? And, you know, not that long ago, a, a young white woman who was very committed and, um, you know, wanting to be involved in change, ask, you know, what can progressive white people do? And uh, without thinking too much, I said, stop being white. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized that there was actually something to that. Uh, <laughs> because if you look at the whole constructions of race and the history of this country, uh, you know, how is it that white people knew they were free during slavery? Hmm. Because they weren't slaves, they weren't black, 
and 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 so we have to begin to um, we have to begin to think about other modes of being outside of these. Uh, 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 I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that race doesn't exist, right? Because it's a powerful force. Mm -hmm. It's socially constructed, but it does damage. Yes, it does an enormous amount yes. of damage. Yes, and the work that we're trying to do in um, the um, 21st century, uh, towards the end of the, sec uh, the second decade of the 21st century, is work that really should have been done in the immediate aftermath of slavery. We're like 150 years Behind. too late. Yes. But, but we can't let that prevent us from beginning to do the really hard work now. I, I, I agree 100% with this, and I, I often get into um, conversations with people who ask, well, why are we looking back at history like that? Why would we look at history? And these are often white folks who don't recognize the, the impact and the power of going back and looking at the history. They're like, well, we're just dealing with what's happening right now. Like, in the aftermath of all of these um, black lives being taken, I mean, you know, social media was blowing up and all of this stuff, but I mean, really have no sense of history. Whereas, you know, if you're a black person in this country, you're thinking about history almost 24 seven. Yeah, I mean, there's no way we can extricate ourselves from history. I mean, we inhabit those histories and perhaps even more importantly, those histories inhabit us, mm -hmm. even if we don't realize it. Uh, um, so, and, and, and you know, the, the historical amnesia that is encouraged in the U.S. Uh, is, uh, is so damaging. It's, and this is one of the reasons why we have to also stretch our, our vision, our imagination, and to understand our connections with people in other places. Uh, the, 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 the historical amnesia with respect to U.S. history is very much related to the American exceptionalism, which tries to present people in this country uh, as exceptional. Uh, so yeah, the, the US-centric uh, positions that are always encouraged have a lot to do with the way that racism has persisted. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. uh, which isn't to say that racism doesn't exist in other parts of the world, certainly it does. Uh, mm -hmm. And you know, certainly um, it's the ways in which Islamophobia uh, uh, has uh, been, um, has completely um, changed the terrain of racism in the world, including anti-black racism or anti-Latino racism. It's so important to think about these issues and not to think narrowly, not to think only about black people and about, I mean, the, the importance of black history is not, it has very little to do with black people per se, yes. but rather with the fact that the black struggle for freedom has persisted for hundreds of years. And that history is valuable 
um, not only to people of African descent, but to everyone who loves freedom. Uh, uh. Yes. One of the things, the sort of last question that I want to ask before I get into the, um, these questions here is, uh, we've talked a lot about um, what can be done to um, make this work sustainable. How do people not burn out? What are the, the self and kind of community care strategies that have helped you have the kind of, of, of um, just reach over the, the years? What have you done basically to keep yourself healthy is what we want to know. <laughs> well, I have tried. <laughs> um, I don't know. I've, I've done what most people try to do. Um, you know, I think that um, it's important for the body, the mind, and the spirit to strive toward health and um, like you know I smoked for many years I didn't know any better um, I was a chain smoker when I was in jail mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I smoked strong cigarettes uh, Golois <laughs> although I found out later that they didn't have as many chemicals <laughs> as, as US cigarettes so uh, but um, I, I sort of happened upon some uh, modes of self-care that I wasn't really that conscious of at mm -hmm. the time. Um, I mean, I happened upon yoga when I was in jail. Mm. And that was before the yoga industry. And there weren't even yoga mats then, so... <laughs> <laughs> And I was, I, I, I had terrible headaches that uh, nothing uh, 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 could uh, uh, stave off. So I, I had, I had a, a, an amazing doctor um, who still lives in Oakland, Dr. Talbert Small, who was a doctor for the Black Panther, members of the Black Panther Party. And he had, um, he had gone to China and had studied acupuncture. Mm. This is before acupuncture, right? Chinese medicine. Um, and, uh, and he also, uh, uh, so he actually brought, this is a black doctor, right? He brought me in a, a book. He brought a book into my jail cell and said, why don't you try doing some of these yoga postures to see if that helps? Uh, so I, when I was in jail, I, I said before that for, in many ways it was a gift to spend that time in jail. Mm -hmm. uh, I, um, I was able to do uh, like 10 minute headstand meditations, uh, 10 minute meditations in headstand in the middle of the floor. Wow. Because um, I had a lot of time. <laughs> you know, so, but I, I learned, you know, I learned some, uh, and I didn't think of it as self care then. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but that's something I've carried with me. Uh, I uh, I stopped eating meat when I was in jail. Mm. But it had nothing to do with a, a con vegan consciousness. <laughs> it was because uh, the meat was full of maggots and <laughs> stuff like that. Uh, um, so some things have just come to me. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. uh, 
But what I can say is that um, I do think we need to incorporate collective modes of self-care. Yes. Into our activism, because you know, for a long time, I was I was practicing yoga, but um, uh, in the movement, people were saying, you know, isn't that individualistic and bourgeois and all of that? Uh, I mean, and actually, yoga does have a tradition uh, that uh, would. Uh, Lynn went to make those kinds of criticisms if you go all the way back uh, in India. But, um, but I think that uh, rather than uh, individuals being responsible for their individual selves, we need to figure out you know, how to develop a more collective consciousness uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and recognize that our individuality is so much a function of who we are in community, mm -hmm. of our relations mm -hmm. with others. Uh, and then we begin to recognize that, um, that, that we're all in this together, that we really are, and we all need to be healthy together. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we need to care together, care about the planet, and, um, you know, recognize that there is a connection among all of our struggles, whether it's a, the movement against racism, uh, the, uh, uh, the um, uh, recognition, especially now, that a new kind of leadership is coming from women, uh, from black women, black queer women. Hmm. Uh, and, and that sense of, 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 of collective um, connections, of, of, of building community, is what I think will save us. Yeah. I agree. I'm an advocate of what I call community care. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm going to get to some of these questions here. Um, I think these two might um, sort of go together. So what do you have for, um, what advice do you have for women of color trying to have their ideas taken seriously in academia? <sighs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think it, that process uh, inevitably involves a challenge to the um, the, 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 the notion that scholarly production is um, individualistic. Um, you know, I think that collaborative scholarly work mm. uh, is so important, especially now. Uh, collaborative, uh, interdisciplinary um, work in the broadest sense that sees a connection between scholarship and activism. Mm -hmm. uh, because after all, uh, isn't at bottom, those of us who engage in the process of trying to produce knowledge, isn't the real reason for that to make the world a better place? Mm. I mean, so that, you know, all, whether it's scientific knowledge or knowledge in the humanities, I mean, aren't we, 
Isn't that what we should all be doing? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that, um, again, creating community. Uh, the, the academy can... can uh, Isolate. Make people feel <laughs> so isolated. Uh, uh, I... Um, for many, many years, I was involved, I was the faculty advisor for um, a formation at UC Santa Cruz that was um, um, uh, the, the research cluster for the study of women of color in collaboration and conflict. <laughs> <laughs> And so that really, really awkward uh, 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 name is supposed to uh, allow us to think about all of the work that is necessary mm -hmm. uh, to create those kinds of um, collectives and those kinds of collaborative uh, uh, formations. And I think that we just, we need much, much more collaboration. Uh, and we also need to recognize and I and I and I sound like a broken record because I, I, I feel impelled to say this over and over again, that knowledge production happens in other places as well, mm -hmm. not only in the academy, yes. not only at yes. the university. Yes. I mean, I've been working in a field for quite some time that we call critical prison studies, which is an interdisciplinary field. Mm -hmm. uh, and that field was basically founded by prisoners. Yes. The, the, the foundational work happened in prison. And it was done by prison intellectuals. Uh, and so if we can think more capaciously mm -hmm. about what it means to be an intellectual, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's a professionalized in intellectual or whether it's an organic intellectual at the level of the community or in other institutions. I think that uh, uh, we would be a lot better off. I, I agree. I agree. Some of the foundations of postmodernism, actually. Mm -hmm. So this question is from Kamila. <laughs> so where are you? She's five years old. Okay. Are you up there? Yeah, I think she's up there. Okay. She says, it was nice taking a picture with you. I'm a five-year-old girl and my friends at school asked me why I'm so black. What would you say? You mean black ideologically or? <laughs> now, here we go, yes. <laughs> um, Kamila, where are you? There she is in the gray shirt well, up there. You know, you know what, we, what we used to say is I'm black and I'm beautiful. Mm. Um, Yes, the black are. is really beautiful. Uh, and, you know, all of us here at this event uh, owe it to Kamila to promise her a world in which black 
is extricated from all of its negative connotations. Mm. So that... So that your friends, Kamila, will say, I love it uh, that, uh, that you're so beautiful. Your black skin is beautiful. Isn't that the way you feel? <laughs> well, th thank you. I, th I see a future activist here. Too. I think so. I think so. I think we have a few in the room. See, that's why, that's why um, Black Panther was so important, uh, because that was probably the very first time in the history of cinema that we have seen so many beautiful, dark-skinned black women on screen. Am I right? Yes. Can you think of anything else? Strong. Intelligent. Yeah. But also, you know, black is, is not a color. Uh, it's not just a color. Mm -hmm. Black is a political identity. I wanted you to speak to and that. And I think that, I think that, um, that uh, in this country, we've been urged to call ourselves African-American, and that is about, that's an assimilationist move uh, mm. to, you know, first of all, and I, I make this point all the time, why don't we understand that there are people of African descent all over the Americas? I mean, I just came, I just came back from Costa Rica, and Costa Rica just elected the very first black woman vice president wow. in all of Latin America. Epps, her name is Epsi Campbell. And, and so I want an identity that allows me to feel connected uh, across national borders. Uh, for some reason, we assume that the nation is the most appropriate form of human community. And the nation, the nation is a pretty much a capitalist invention, right? And I think that we, we, we will have to move away from the nation state uh, uh, if we're going to move in a progressive direction. Mm. That's all the problems with, with, uh, with immigrations and borders and sending the military to protect the border. It makes no sense at all. Uh, we're citizens. We're, we're planetary citizens. We're mm. citizens of the world, citizens mm. of the globe, global citizens. And I think, you know, black people have to think in those terms as well. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. The next question. How can women enfold men in the feminine concept of collaboration to end the capitalist patriarchy? <laughs> These are, you know, just yeah, yeah. small questions. I mean, questions. I appreciate the question. <laughs> Um, I mean, you know, first of all, uh, before when I was using the category women and I said I'm mindful that I'm using these, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. These, uh, these categories that are really charged and, the, and don't really 
um, say what we're really Me. trying to get at all the time. Um, and, and so I don't, I mean, I don't think that women are naturally collaborative. Not naturally. I don't think women are naturally anything. Uh, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's about history. It's about, mm -hmm. ab about mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, the social um, production. Uh, uh, and I, I think that, um, I think we should collaborate. And we have to, to really work on that. Uh, uh, all genders. And see, the problem is when we talk about women and men, male and female, we inevitably fall into this gender binary that does not allow us to understand the way in which gender has been produced over time. Uh, uh, so, um, working against, working toward uh, collectivities and collaborations and communities is working against um, global capitalism. It really is. Uh, uh, the, the whole neoliberal discourse that emphasizes the individual, uh, that, that um, uh, sees the individual as the primary unit of society uh, has uh, invaded our consciousness to the extent that, you know, all of us are affected by this. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think that, that we have to figure out how to do the work that makes us conscious of these forces that operate on us. And I, I, don't, think that, I don't think that we can extricate ourselves from them. Uh, I mean, all of us are affected by capitalism. Mm -hmm. I mean, capitalism determines, uh, uh, you know, who, what we like and what we don't like, and, and 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 what our dreams are and what our aspirations are. We're so thoroughly ensconced in this capitalist system that there's no way to say, "Oh, okay, I'm just going to jump out of the system right now." Uh, mm. But what we can do is develop habits of consciousness that allow us to remind ourselves uh, where we are and who we are and uh, to, to recognize that all of our thoughts are not our thoughts alone. Uh, you know, and, and this is a thing, this in the struggle against racism. Uh, you know, racism isn't about defective human beings who just became racist because they didn't, you know, like uh, Latinx people or black people or Muslims or whatever. It's, it's a part of a system that has been hmm. produced in conjunction with capitalism. Mm -hmm. yes. I mean, capitalism is racial yes. capitalism. Yes. And, and, and we, I know it sounds big, and this is the end, uh, towards the end of the evening, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and we've been talking about these problems that seem to have no apparent immediate solution. Uh, we may as well talk about capitalism. Uh, yes. And they're all very much interconnected. Yes. Uh, uh, and I do think that we have to... Uh, 
develop a greater capacity to have these conversations, mm -hmm. uh, to have these conversations about capitalism yes. and, and, and what might come after capitalism, mm -hmm. how to imagine uh, beyond the limits, the borders of the capitalist system. Yes. Can you please speak to the incremental rise of individualism in our society in relation to the impact that it has on our social, political, economic movements today and how we can move in the direction of smaller individual acts of revolution and larger global acts of revolution and solidarity. <laughs> oh, okay. It's the both and. <laughs> well, um, you know, maybe I should go back and revise uh, what I said um, in response to the question about um, feminine collaboration. Um, because I do think that historically, um, uh, women, and particularly poor women, particularly women of color, have been, um, um, have been able to um, change history precisely as a result of that sense of community. And, um, you know, we usually think about leaders when we think about movements. Uh, and I think we're very fortunate now to be in a place where we can think about movements without obsessing on who the leaders are. Uh, because it's always been about finding the leader, right? And the leader has always been a man, has always <laughs> been a kind of charismatic uh, 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 masculinist figure, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and and that, that isn't at all to say that, uh, that people like Malcolm and Martin and Marcus uh, uh, didn't do amazing work. But at the same time, um, leadership is not about single individuals. It's about, it's, it's about creating a collective sense of, of moving forward. And, uh, and, and certainly, I mean, I like to point out that even here in the Bay Area, most people don't even know that the majority of the members of the Black Panther Party were women. <laughs> They think of it because, because it was an you know, organization for self-defense and uh, you know, men with guns and Huey and Bobby. And, but it was the women who did all the work, who did the most important work. The breakfast work. programs yes. and the... <laughs> it was. It's always the women who, who do, do the most important work. <laughs> And I think progressive men have to acknowledge that. Mm. Mm. Um, and so now this sense of there being collective leadership, I think that, uh, that that's something very new in, in uh, our history. Uh, and you know, certainly uh, the, 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 the women who founded Black Lives Matter, you know, Patrice and 
uh, Alicia and mm -hmm. Opal uh, have emphasized that, uh, the, that, 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 that leadership needs to be collective uh, and, that, and that history can, can be transformed as a result of that collective uh, uh, impulse. Uh, I mean, isn't it amazing that within such a short period of time we've actually learned how to talk publicly about white supremacy? Hmm. I mean, for so long, that wasn't possible. You didn't hear people on the news talking about racism or white supremacy uh, and white nationalists and, you know, all of these... Uh, they're coming out of the woodwork. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I think that uh, this is a time to be really excited. Uh, this, is, this is a particular historical conjuncture that holds within um, uh, the possibility of vast change. Uh, and, and I'm saying this because we have a tendency to get really depressed when we think about who's in Washington, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. but, but politics aren't always determined by electoral politics. Uh, uh, I mean, there are other arenas of political expression. And while I would prefer to have someone better, uh, you know, as the head of the uh, executive branch of government, uh, I don't even think he understands uh, <laughs> the tripartite structure of government. <laughs> but we have the opportunity to make a change, uh, uh, to begin to address uh, some of these issues that have uh, festered in this country and in the world uh, uh, for so long. And I'm particularly interested in developing ties with people who are struggling in other places. Uh, 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 Palestine, for example, and especially now. And I don't, th I don't think that it is accidental that, um, that Palestinian activists were the first to respond to the protest in Ferguson. Mm. And they kind of helped to create this wave of global support for black people who were struggling against police violence, mm -hmm. racist police violence mm -hmm. in this country. And black people, especially in the US, have been the recipients of solidarity uh, since the era of slavery. Yep. I mean, I like to point out that uh, I, I, you know, I went to uh, Belfast uh, not that long ago, and they were still talking about Frederick Douglass's uh, visit. Yes. <laughs> and they had a huge mural of Frederick Douglass. Wow. Uh, uh, and wherever you go in the world, people know about uh, the black struggle in the U.S. Mm. You know, there. There was a Black Lives Matter in Belfast uh, and a Black Lives Matter in Dublin. Uh, um, but, but why do we not reciprocate? 
you know, why can we not understand that, uh, um, particularly because we have been the recipient of, of international solidarities over uh, decades and centuries, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we should be upfront when it comes to uh, supporting people who are struggling in Brazil. Uh, you know? And especially given the, 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 the difficult situation in Brazil. Brazil yeah. was really a, the hope for the future huh. until the coup. And now it's like, the, you know, the black women's movement in Brazil yes. is the most important social movement there. Mm -hmm. and, so, and so what happens with the assassination of one of the most important figures, Marielle um, Franco? Yes. So why aren't we rising up? Why aren't we mm -hmm. demonstrating yeah. that this is our struggle too? Mm. That Palestine is our struggle too. Mm. And all of the people who have been uh, killed by the Israeli army uh, for peacefully protesting <laughs> at the border in Gaza, that we cannot allow that to happen. Yeah. So I want to end on this expansive note, mm. on, on, on the note of our f finding hope for the future by um, imagining ourselves as a part of uh, a much larger global community. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.